Greetings in the name of Christ our Lord. This Bible study has been prepared to help you understand the doctrine of salvation more perfectly. The Word of God is presented in such a way that we must take the time to study out the various divisions of words and concepts found in Scripture. Salvation being one of the most important concepts the Word of God has to reveal to us, we need to take extra precaution here that we rightly divide the doctrine of salvation. This is the intent of this study. I hope you have come to this study with a prayerful attitude, that your Bible is ready at hand, that is a King James Version of the Bible, and that you are prepared to look in your Bibles to see what God has revealed about the great subject of salvation. Before we look into his word directly, let us ask for his blessing upon us as we study this great subject. Holy Father in heaven, we thank thee that you have given to us in our own language the Holy Scriptures. We thank thee that the Scriptures are able to make us wise unto salvation. Lord, we now ask that you would bless us with thy Holy Spirit, the spirit of illumination in understanding thy will. Deliver us from the distracting cares of this world, from the deceitfulness of our own hearts, from the vain imaginations and theories of men that we might look only to thy word, hold what we find there dear, and hate every false way. Bless us, Heavenly Father, to see the Lord Jesus Christ more clearly and perfectly than we ever have before, and to realize our duties as they pertain to salvation. Bless us now through Christ's sake, and for the benefit of his people. Amen. As I mentioned, this Bible study covers the subject of salvation. Hopefully you have already heard the study entitled The Unconditional Salvation, which reviews the seven proofs contained in God's Word that eternal salvation in a home in glory with Christ is by the unconditional grace of God. This particular study attempts to divide the various aspects of salvation so that you can see where God is responsible for an aspect of salvation and where you are responsible for a different aspect. The subject of salvation is one of the greatest contained in the Word of God. Obviously, it's very important to all of us. All of us are greatly concerned as to where we will spend eternity. Even though the subject of salvation is so important, there have always been great controversies surrounding the subject. Some who want to exalt the sovereignty of God emphasize the fact that it is God that works salvation. They love to take expressions such as, salvation is of the Lord, and emphasize the fact that anyone who will land in heaven will be there because of what God has done for that individual. On the other hand, there are those who emphasize the responsibility of man. They teach that the only way a man can be saved is to perform, to fulfill the conditions that God has set before man in order to be saved. So we have two great schools of thought, some emphasizing the sovereignty of God, or what God does in salvation, and some laying heavy emphasis upon what man must do in order to earn salvation, that man yet is a responsible creature relative to eternal life. Because of that, we have the great controversy between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. There have been books written dealing with this controversy exclusively. They call it a mystery, that while we're here in this world, we are unable to reconcile the differences between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility as they pertain to salvation. 
I want to take away that mystery in this Bible study. I want to show you that if we'll follow the Bible's own rules for interpretation and study, we can easily reconcile man's responsibility and God's sovereignty in salvation. I hope that you'll attend this study with great carefulness of mind. Please try to avoid any distraction and use your Bibles as we turn to various passages of Scripture to see what God has revealed about salvation. The first passage we can look at is 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. 2 Timothy 3, 15. This verse, written by Paul to another preacher, Timothy, tells us something about the doctrine of salvation in relation to the Scriptures. Paul says, And that from a child thou hast known the holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. The point I want you to get from this verse is that the Holy Scriptures are able to make us wise unto salvation. If you want to become wise relative to the doctrine of salvation, it's to the Scriptures we must go. What men have to say about salvation is irrelevant. Look at Psalm 119 with me for just a minute. Whatever man has to say about salvation is irrelevant. It's what God has to say, and God has revealed His will in the Holy Scriptures. In Psalm 119 and verse 128, I read this. Therefore, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. David here tells us that no matter what God's word has to say on whatever subject, he considers it to be right and he hates anything that contradicts it. Come back to verses 98 through 100. David writes here, Thou through thy commandments hast made me wiser than mine enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep thy precepts. David here takes the confident attitude that because he meditates upon God's word, because he studies and learns God's word and keeps its precepts, he is wiser than his enemies, he has more understanding than his teachers, and he understands more than the ancients. Regardless of what the church fathers have said, regardless of what teachers may have taught you in the past, it is to the word of God we must turn to learn the doctrine of salvation. I hope you will have the same attitude that David had here in this 119th Psalm. I also hope you'll have the attitude that the noble Bereans had in Acts chapter 17 and verse 11. Please turn to Acts 17, 11, and let's see how God describes a noble man. In Acts 17, verse 10, Paul has been preaching in the city of Berea, and he has this to say of the citizens of Berea in verse 11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. Even though Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ, even though he could heal the sick, raise the dead, and cast out demons, and speak in foreign tongues, these noble Bereans searched the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was teaching was the truth. They first received it with all readiness of mind, and I hope that you have a ready mind to receive God's word as you listen to this tape. But after that, they searched the scriptures to see if what they were hearing was indeed the truth of God's word. I have prepared a detailed outline to accompany this tape. I hope that you have it before you. If you will use that outline, then you have the means to study what I am giving you. You have the means to prove each point that is made. You have the means to look up each scripture reference that I'll be using. 
In 1 Thessalonians 5.21, Paul said, Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. That's what I hope you will do. I don't want you to take my word for the doctrine of salvation. You take God's word only so far as I speak according to that word. Let God be true and every man a liar, and that includes myself. So search the scriptures and prove all things. And if what you hear in this tape does describe to you what God has revealed about his salvation, then hold it fast, believe it, and stand by it. There has been a great emphasis placed in modern days upon salvation experiences. Two questions are frequently asked in gospel meetings. The first question is, have you been saved? And the second question is, when were you saved? Now, I'm sure that you've been faced with these two questions a number of times. What would Paul have said if he had been asked, are you saved? And what would Paul have said if he had been asked, when were you saved? Let's look at five passages of scripture to see if Paul isn't confused about when he was saved. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. In this verse, Paul tells us that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That means that some years before the Apostle Paul wrote these words, he was confident Jesus Christ had come into the world to save him. Now, if we come over three chapters to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 16, we have Paul writing these words to Timothy. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Here, Paul is telling Timothy that he can save himself by taking heed to himself and to the doctrine. If, Paul, if Timothy would be a faithful minister, as he describes in verses 13 through 15, Timothy could not only save himself, but he could also save those that heard him. Now, in 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul said that Jesus Christ was the Savior, and he did the saving when he came into the world, that is, through the virgin birth of Mary. But here in 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul is saying that Timothy can save himself by being a diligent minister. Let's look at Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. This is another reference to another preacher of the gospel named Titus. In Titus 3, 5, Paul writes, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Here in Titus 3, 5, Paul says that God saved us by the regenerating work of the Holy Ghost. Now, so far, we've seen three different salvations under consideration, or Paul's confused. In 1 Timothy 1.15, it was Jesus Christ who saved us. In 1 Timothy 4.16, it was Timothy who could save himself. And here in Titus 3.5, it's the Holy Ghost who regenerates us that is the basis for our salvation. But in Romans 13 and 11, we have yet another statement of Paul about his salvation. In Romans 13.11, we read, and that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. Now wait a minute, Paul. You told us in 1 Timothy 1.15 that Jesus Christ saved you when he came into the world. You told us in Titus 3.5 that the Holy Ghost saved us when he regenerates us. Now you're saying that you're not saved yet, but that your salvation is nearer than when you believed. 
Doesn't Paul sound confused? I wonder what Paul would say in answer to the question, when were you saved, Paul? But there's one more verse that we need to look at, and that's 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 9. Paul writes to Timothy and says, Speaking of God, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Now Paul says here in 2 Timothy 1.9 that God hath saved us, past tense. His salvation's already been completed, and it was completed according to an eternal purpose that God purposed in Christ Jesus. So there we have five references of the Apostle Paul regarding his salvation, and he sounds confused relative to the question, when was he saved? He describes salvation that occurred when Jesus Christ came into the world. He describes the salvation that occurred by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And he describes a salvation that occurred in Christ Jesus before the world began. And yet he says that his salvation is nearer. It has not yet come, according to Romans 13, 11. And he also writes Timothy and says that Timothy can save himself. Paul here gives us five different verses describing different phases, aspects, or senses of salvation. And that's what we want to study in this particular review of the doctrine of salvation. And that is that we might rightly divide scripture so that we can understand salvation the way God intends us to. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 where Paul gives Timothy one of the rules for properly studying the Bible. 2 Timothy 2.15 Paul said, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Paul tells Timothy that if he's to be a minister that is not ashamed, and if he's to be a minister that receives God's approval, he must rightly divide the word of truth. That is, Scripture must be divided. Paul would not have said to rightly divide it unless Scripture needs some divisions made. That is what we want to do in this study. We want to rightly divide the word of truth. We want to take the doctrine of salvation and divide it into its various aspects so that we can see the full salvation that God has planned and ordained for his people. Now this is a scriptural method of Bible study. When you see a concept or a word in Scripture, you must divide that word or concept so that it makes sense and agrees with the rest of Scripture. If you'll turn to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, Nehemiah, chapter 8, we'll see that this was the very method used by the priests of Israel to give understanding to the Israelites when they read in the book of the law of God. Nehemiah, chapter 8, beginning at verse 7. Now, there are a list of names given, which are the priests and scribes that did the reading in the book of the law to the people. We'll take up in the middle of the verse, Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 7. These particular Levites and priests caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read in the book in the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense, and caused them to understand the reading. Notice that the method used by the priests of God were to read in the book of the law of God distinctly, then they were to sense. And by doing these two things, reading the law of God and giving the sense, they cause the people to understand God's word. That is what we're going to do in this study. We shall read distinctly what God has to say, and then I will apply the sense that scripture must be given in order for it to make sense and to agree together. It is your duty 
to search the scriptures and to prove all things as to whether I have given you the truth or not by this method. You can see, hopefully, that it is the scriptural method of studying salvation. So many people today talk about salvation without defining their terms. They say, when were you saved? And they don't tell you what aspect of your salvation that they're inquiring about. And that is what Paul would have, would have demanded of us. He would not have accepted the question, when were you saved, without us further defining that salvation, since he saw a number of different aspects, as is obviously evidenced by the five different references that we've just looked at. Paul appears confused relative to salvation unless we understand that he had several different aspects of salvation under consideration. Now, the Bible requires division in a number of categories. For instance, the person of Jesus Christ. We can read in Luke chapter 2 and verse 52 that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. Now, we know that the divine nature of Jesus Christ, that is, the part of Jesus Christ that was the Word of God, that was God himself, that could not have increased in wisdom because it contained all wisdom from eternity. We must look at Luke chapter 2 and verse 52 and realize that that is speaking of the human nature of Jesus Christ, that he grew and developed in human wisdom and human stature just as we all grow and develop. That's just one more example of how divisions must be made in the Word of God. Now, what I want to do in this study is present to you five phases of salvation. Now, in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 8, the word that was used was the sense. The Levites read in the book of the law of God and gave the sense. That is, some words and some concepts will have different senses that we must rightly divide. I'm calling these the phases of salvation or the senses of salvation, and there are five of them. What I want to do is present to you the five phases of salvation, the five aspects or different stages of our salvation from the beginning until when we're finally in God's presence in heaven and have you see that when the word saved, the word save and the word salvation occurs in scripture, you must rightly divide it and place it in one of those five categories, one of those five senses or one of those five phases. Let's look now at the five phases of salvation. The first phase of salvation is what we're going to call the eternal phase. We call it the eternal phase because it took place in eternity past. That is, before God began to create the world, before he created Adam and Eve, a certain aspect of our salvation was completed. We call this the eternal phase. All of God's works, whatever God does in time, is the result of God's eternal purpose. Look at Acts chapter 15 and verse 18 with me. Acts 15 and verse 18, and let's read distinctly in the law of God and then give the sense. And the sense I'm putting on this particular phase is the eternal phase. In Acts 15, 18, we read, Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. See, God works according to a purpose. Before he created the world, he purposed all that would take place. He purposed what he would do. He purposed how he would save, why he wanted to save, and what he would give to those that he did save. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11 with me. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11. Speaking of our salvation in Christ, Paul writes, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. 
God works according to a counsel. It's the counsel of his own will. And he works all things after the counsel of that will. The eternal phase is the aspect of salvation that occurred in the will of God. The main aspect or component of this phase of salvation is election. Before the world began, God elected, that is, God chose those he would save. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, and you're already there, beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Now notice that God blesses men with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Now how do men get in Christ to realize those blessings? Well, verse 4 will tell us. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Notice that it is the good pleasure of God's will to choose some sinners in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world that they might receive all spiritual blessings that he has planned in Christ. This is the eternal phase of salvation. God plans, God chooses, God ordains in his will who shall be saved and what they shall receive. Now it's often taught that God looked down from heaven and saw who would obey him, and those are the ones he chose to salvation. But that's not what scripture teaches. In Psalm chapter 14, Psalm 14, we can see that God did not look upon the goodness of man or upon man's works or man's obedience when he elected some to salvation. Psalm 14, I'd like to read verses 2 and 3. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. It is true from this passage of Scripture that God looked down from heaven. But when he looked down from heaven, he didn't find a single man that understood him. He didn't find a single man that was seeking after him. In fact, they were all gone aside. They were gone out of the way of God. They were all together become filthy, and there wasn't one that did good. No, not one. Because man was in such a rotten state, God had to choose some that he would save by his own power. This is the eternal phase of salvation. In this phase of salvation, God elected who he would save. Not only that, he chose Jesus Christ to be the Savior. In 1 Peter 1 and verse 20, we can read that Christ was foreordained to die the, the death of crucifixion for us before the world began. Not only that, we can read in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 34 that the everlasting kingdom we shall inherit in heaven was prepared for us from before the foundation of the world. So the eternal phase involves God's will. It is God's plan. It is God's eternal purpose to save some men in Jesus Christ to an everlasting kingdom that he's prepared for them. It is the will of God the Father that provides the basis for the eternal phase. It's God's will whereby he elects certain sinners to salvation in Jesus Christ. Now let's go to phase two. Phase two is the legal phase of salvation. It is the phase that involves the death of Jesus Christ. The eternal phase was God's choice of who he would save. The legal phase is Christ's work in order to make that salvation possible. Because God is just and righteous, 
He cannot save someone from sin without that sin being paid for. Either sinners must suffer eternally in hell and pay for their own sins, or a substitute must be found to pay for those sins. God cannot overlook wickedness. In Exodus chapter 34 and verse 7, we read that God cannot by any means clear the wicked or acquit the guilty. God can't do it. God is so righteous and so just that every transgression must be punished. Now, either he punishes, punishes those transgressions in the sinners themselves, or he punishes them in a substitute. And this is the second phase of salvation, or the legal phase, where Jesus Christ provided a legal basis for God's elect to be saved. Look at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and we'll read three verses in this chapter that describe this legal aspect of salvation. Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 24. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. The main component of the legal phase is justification. Election, remember, is what God did in the first phase of salvation, the eternal phase. In the second phase, the legal phase, it is Christ that justifies us. And the reason Christ must justify us is because God must be just. And that's what we read in verse 26, that he might be just. Therefore, he must punish someone for our sins. And yet he wants to be the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. God had chosen some men to be saved in the eternal phase. Now in the legal phase, Jesus Christ must pay for their sins in order for God to be able to save them. Because without a substitutionary death, they themselves must die eternally in hell. It is the life, the obedient life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that makes us righteous and justifies us. Jesus Christ provided a legal way by which we could be saved. God could not have saved anyone without the death of Jesus Christ, without a legal payment have, having been made on our behalf. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, speaking of God, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Notice in this verse a legal transaction took place. God charged Jesus Christ with our sins, and God charged us with the righteousness of Christ. Christ was made sin for us and suffered the death due that sin. We have been made righteous with Christ's righteousness, and therefore we shall live with God in eternity. This is the legal phase of salvation. Now we move to the vital phase. The word vital is not a complicated word. It simply means someone who is alive or something that brings life. If you were to be taken to an emergency room after a serious accident, they would look for your vital signs. That is, they would look for those signs that indicate you have life yet within your physical body. The vital phase is when life is actually given to individuals. God chose individuals to be saved in eternity. Christ died for them 2,000 years ago to make it legally possible. Now it is the Spirit's operation that actually imparts that spiritual life to 
God's elect children. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll have this aspect of salvation defined for us. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. And you hath he quickened, who were made, who were dead in trespasses and sins. The word quickened means to be made alive. Quick means life or alive. You hath he quickened, that is, you hath he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Though God had elected these Ephesians to salvation in eternity, that is, the eternal phase of salvation, and Christ had died for them on the cross, thus justifying them in the legal phase of salvation, by nature, that is, by their attitude toward God and by their desire to continue to sin, they were just like everyone else. And by nature, they were the children of wrath, even as others. Now it is the Spirit of God's responsibility and operation to bring them into spiritual life by giving them a new nature. And this is the vital phase of salvation. This is the phase whereby God's elect, those that Christ has died for, are given life. They're given a new nature. Look at verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, obviously he loved us because he chose us in Christ, and he gave Jesus Christ to die for us. But look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in sins, that is, our nature was dead toward God. We had no desire toward God. We were like those that we read about in Psalm chapter 14. They did not seek God. They did not understand God. They were all gone out of the way, and they were altogether become unprofitable. Even when we were in that shape, when we were dead in sins, God hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice, God has raised us up. We've been raised from our death in trespasses and sins. He's given us life. We have a new nature. Verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. God elected us in the eternal phase. Christ justified us in the legal phase. And now the Spirit of God quickens us or regenerates us or gives us the new birth in the vital phase. We are worked on by God, who gives us a new nature. Look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 24. For Paul tells in Ephesians, And that he put out a new man, who after God is righteous in true holiness. Jesus Christ made us righteous when he died on the cross. When he said his name, the basis for our righteousness was completed. But now the Spirit of God, sometime during our lifetimes, must give us a new righteous nature. In this verse, it's called the new man, which is created by God's creative power through the Holy Spirit. It's created in righteousness and true holiness. Those are the first three phases of salvation. God the Father elected us in Jesus Christ before the world began. Jesus Christ came into the world and died for our sins to make it legally possible for us to be saved. Sometime during our lifetimes, the Holy Spirit will regenerate us. He will give us the new birth in order to give us a new nature that is now fit for God's presence. Without that new nature, we would have no inclination toward God, and God could not accept us into his presence. 
These first three phases of salvation are entirely the work of God. God doesn't ask sinners to cooperate with him. He doesn't use any means at all in order to affect these three phases or senses or stages of salvation. He does them by himself. They are all wrapped up in the three persons of the Godhead. God the Father elects, Christ the Son justifies, and God the Holy Spirit regenerates. Now we come to what is called the practical phase of salvation. This is the phase that we are responsible for. This phase is where we must hear the preaching of the gospel, what God is requiring of us, and where we must actively obey him. The practical phase is the result of the first three phases. By nature, man has no interest in God. He is an enemy of God, according to Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. Remember, he doesn't understand God, and he doesn't seek God, according to Psalm 14 and verse 2. But after God has elected a man, and after Christ has died for that man, and after the Holy Spirit has given that man a new nature, that man is now able to obey and please God. And that is his duty in the practical phase of salvation. By believing the gospel, man is able to be saved from error. What makes the difference between a man in error and a man who is serving God in truth? The difference is he hasn't been taught yet, or he hasn't obeyed. By the gospel coming to that man in error, he's able to see the error of his way and be converted from that error and now worship God in truth. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, where we can see this phase more clearly. God first works salvation in a man through the first three phases. And then we must work that salvation out by doing those things that are pleasing to God. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12, Paul writes to the church at Philippi and says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Notice the two salvations in these two verses. First of all, we're to work out a salvation with fear and trembling. But we are to work out that salvation because God worked in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God has elected men, Christ has justified men, and the Holy Spirit has regenerated men in order that they would will and do of God's good pleasure. God has created all things for his pleasure, according to Revelation 4 and verse 11. And he wants us now to work that salvation out. God has worked in us the new man, the inner man. What we read about in Ephesians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 4. It is now our duty to work that man out by willing and doing those things that are pleasing to God. If we're in false doctrine, if we're believing a false concept of God or worshiping a false God or practicing things that God abhors and has not required for a New Testament church, then we're not pleasing to God. Therefore, the gospel comes along and tells us what we must do in order to please God. How would you ever think of baptism if it was not for the gospel that commanded you to be baptized? God might have elected you, Christ might have justified you, and the Spirit might have regenerated you, but until you hear the gospel, how do you know enough to be baptized and to answer God with a good conscience, as 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21 describes? You would only know about baptism by the preaching of the gospel and by obedience to that gospel. 
It is your duty to hear and to believe the gospel. You can be saved from error. You can be saved from false doctrine. You can be saved from judgment. What about the church at Corinth, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, who abused the Lord's Supper by treating it as just a carnal feast? We read in that chapter that some of those Corinthians were sick, some were weak, and some had even died under God's judgment for abusing the Lord's Supper. Now, if the gospel comes to them, the gospel can tell them what they're doing wrong, and by obeying that gospel and correcting their behavior, they can be saved from God's judgment. That is the purpose of the gospel. We can be saved from despair. We can be saved from fear. We can be saved from false bondage to false systems of religion. For instance, there are many who are in bondage to systems of salvation based on works. That their eternal salvation in heaven is dependent upon how much they give, how faithfully they attend, whether they observe and keep all the sacraments of the church. That's bondage, my friends. When you are dependent upon your giving and upon your faithfulness in order to be saved, that is a form of bondage. You are held under the control and dominion of a group of men who come up with the rules you must keep. The gospel comes along and tells men, no, salvation is based on God's election, it's based upon Christ's death on the cross, and it's based upon the Spirit's regeneration. When you hear that message of good news, then you've been saved from the bondage of men. You've been saved from the fear of death, as Hebrews chapter 2 describes it. This phase of salvation is called conversion. The gospel comes to men and converts them from forms of behavior that are not pleasing to God to that behavior that is pleasing to Him. This is conversion. Men are converted, that is, they're changed from one form of behavior to another. They're converted or changed from not pleasing God to a form of behavior that does please Him. This is working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, conversion occurs in all different degrees among God's elect. Some men are converted to a great degree, like the Apostle Paul was, who understood much that had to be known about God and his salvation. Other men are not converted very much at all, such as Lot. We read about Lot, who was Abraham's nephew, that he was a just man and he was a righteous man. That's what Second Peter chapter 2 tells us. But yet when we read about Lot in Genesis chapter 19, we find him committing incest with his daughters. Lot was not converted nearly as much as his uncle Abraham was. Yet both Abraham and Lot will be in heaven. And the reason for it is, God elected Abraham and Lot equally, Christ died for Abraham and Lot equally, and the Holy Spirit regenerated both of them. Because God performed the first three phases of salvation upon those two men equally, they shall both be in heaven. It's just that here in this world, they didn't ex escape God's judgments equally. Why Lot had his wife turned into a pillar of salt. He lost his home in the city of Sodom, and he ended up committing incest with his own two daughters. While Abraham was the father of the faithful and was blessed abundantly with fruitful wives and wonderful family and God's presence and fellowship with him. These are the benefits that come from the fourth phase of salvation, the practical phase. To the degree we are converted, we enjoy more peace. We enjoy more fellowship with God. We do not lose our eternal salvation by not being converted fully, but we sure do lose some of the benefits God has planned for us here in this world. 
Remember, the prodigal son did not lose his sonship by going and spending his father's inheritance in riotous living in Luke chapter 15. He lost fellowship with his father. And that's what happens to us when we're not converted. When the gospel comes to us in the pig pen of this world, and we hear it and decide to return to our father, that doesn't make us sons. It just allows us the privilege of enjoying our sonship by our father killing the fatted calf, that is our father in heaven, killing the fatted calf for us and showering many blessings upon us here in this world. That's the fourth phase of salvation. That's the purpose of the gospel. The gospel is not to get men into heaven. The preaching of the gospel does not save men from hell to heaven. The preaching of the gospel saves men to the understanding that God wants them to have so that they might receive his blessings of peace, prosperity, and fellowship here in this world and that they might be delivered from his judgment by behaving in a way that is not pleasing to him. The final phase of salvation, the fifth phase, is our glorification in heaven. Although God has elected us, Christ has justified us, and the Spirit has regenerated us, we still live in a body that is sinful. God cannot accept this body into heaven, and therefore we need to be glorified. According to Romans chapter 8 and verse 23, our bodies must be redeemed. Romans 8, 23, Paul writes and says, And not only they, but ourselves also, that this is something Paul was hoping for, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. See, Paul is still waiting for a certain aspect of adoption. He's waiting for the fifth phase, the final phase. We call it the final phase because it is the last aspect of salvation that must be performed. That is the redemption of our body. When our bodies will be redeemed from corruption, redeemed from sin, and glorified in God's presence. It's called glorification in verse 30 of this same chapter. According to 1 Thessalonians 5.23, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, God will yet, in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, God by his power will yet make us perfectly holy in body, soul, and spirit. Paul prayed for the Thessalonians and said, And the very God of peace sanctify you holy. That is, make you holy in a complete sense. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God yet has the final phase of salvation to perform in which he redeems our body from sin and glorifies it when we will be fully fit for God's presence in body, soul, and spirit. These are the five phases of salvation. God elects men to salvation in the eternal phase. Christ died for men to make it legally possible in the legal phase. The Spirit regenerates men by giving them spiritual life in the vital phase. We can obey the gospel and enjoy benefits here in this world in the practical phase. And finally, God will return one day to glorify our bodies and we shall be completely saved, body, soul, and spirit, and fit for God's presence. Now look quickly with me at 1 Peter 1-2, where we have three of these phases contained in one verse. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. Peter writes, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. There's the first phase, the eternal phase. Through sanctification of the Spirit. There's the third phase, or the vital phase. Unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. There's the second, or legal phase. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. In this one verse, God has given to us three of the phases of our salvation. God the Father has elected us. 
Jesus Christ has obeyed and has sprinkled his blood. Let us make a review of what we've covered so far. We have looked at five phases of salvation. The eternal phase in which God elected certain sinners to be saved in Jesus Christ. We've looked at the legal phase where Jesus Christ died on the cross to make their salvation legally possible by satisfying the righteous demands of God's law. We've seen how the Holy Spirit regenerates men by quickening them and giving them spiritual life in the vital phase of salvation. As a result of those three phases, God calls upon his elect children to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. That is, to obey the gospel and do those things that are pleasing in his sight so that they might receive his blessings here in this world. Eternal glory is dependent upon what God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit did for them. The degree that they're converted here in this world, that is the practical phase, does not affect their eternal destiny, but it does affect their confidence of heaven, and it does affect their peace and fellowship while they're here in this world. The final or fifth phase of salvation is when God will redeem the bodies of his elect, put them back together with their glorified souls and spirits, and present them completely, body, soul, and spirit, holy, in, the, in his own presence. This is the final phase of salvation, what the scripture refers to as glorification. Now we read 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2, where we had three of those phases contained in one verse. Peter said, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. The eternal phase is God the Father doing the electing. The legal phase is Jesus Christ obeying and having his blood sprinkled upon those elect. And the third phase, or the vital phase, is the Holy Spirit sanctifying God's elect by giving them a new holy nature. Look with me at Romans chapter 8, which also summarizes some of the phases. Romans chapter 8, where we will see four phases contained in a single verse. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now look, at, look carefully at verse 30. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. There's four phases of salvation indicated by these four words. Predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. Predestination is the eternal phase, or what God the Father did before the world began. The calling is what the Holy Spirit does when he calls sinners into life from death in trespasses and sins. Justification is what Jesus Christ did when he died on the cross. And glorification is what God will do for us at the last day when he presents us perfectly holy in his presence, body, soul, and spirit. Here are four phases contained in one verse. And in verse 31, Paul says, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? See, God works these four aspects of salvation. The other phase of salvation, the practical phase, which is our duty, which in which we have a duty to obey the gospel, that doesn't affect our eternal destiny. We'll be glorified whether we obey the gospel as completely as Paul did, or whether we are as lazy and as slothful and as rebellious as was Lot. But now that does not mean that we'll get through this life free by living in such a way. 
If you live a life that is like Lot's, the only evidence you have is that you'll spend your eternity in hell. You'll have no confidence of eternal glory. If you live a life like the Lot, Abraham's nephew did, you'll receive God's judgment in this world. You'll have no fellowship with God. You'll lack peace in your life. And your righteous soul that was given to you at regeneration will be vexed, as was his soul. And it's described for us in Second Peter chapter 2. The point I want to make is this. God elects in the eternal phase. Christ dies in the legal phase. The Spirit regenerates in the vital phase. And God together glorifies his elect in the final phase. And it is those four phases of salvation that result in us being in heaven, in Christ's presence. The practical phase, when we hear the gospel and believe it, is for us to enjoy some of those blessings even now while we're here in this world by doing those things that are pleasing to God and receiving his approval upon our lives. Now we began this study by looking at five verses that the Apostle Paul gave Timothy, Titus, and the church at Rome regarding his salvation. We agreed that if Paul were to have been asked the question, when were you saved, his answer might have confused some, since the five verses we used showed that his salvation was based upon Christ when he came into the world. Yet another verse said that it was based upon God's purpose before the world began. Yet a third reference showed that his salvation was dependent upon the Holy Spirit's regeneration. And at the same time, he could write the Romans and say that he hadn't been saved yet, that his salvation was nearer. And he told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16 that Timothy could save himself. Let's look again at those verses and see if they just don't fall into the five phases of salvation as neatly as your hand might fit into a glove. First, let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. 2 Timothy 1, 9. Paul writes and says, Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. This should be obvious to you that it is speaking of the eternal phase of salvation. It's a phase that is not dependent on our works. Because remember from Psalm 14, God looked down and didn't see any man that was working anything pleasing to him. But it was according to his own purpose and grace, which is the eternal counsel of God's will. And it was given to, this purpose and grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began. That's why we call it the eternal phase, because it took place back in eternity past. This is the eternal phase of salvation under consideration here in 2 Timothy 1.9. It's where Paul is describing his election and predestination according to the purpose and will of God. Now let's look at 1 Timothy 1.15. 1 Timothy 1.15. Paul said this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now, Paul just told us that he had been saved before the foundation of the world in 2 Timothy 1.9. Now he's telling us that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Obviously, this must be referring to our legal phase of salvation. That is, when Jesus Christ came into the world, that is, he came in with a flesh and blood body that was able to die on the cross and provide a legal means for our salvation. And it took place when Christ Jesus came into the world. He went out of the world 33 and a half years later, and he is no longer in this world. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. What happened at the cross was the legal basis 
for our salvation. Now let's look at Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Now here's a salvation that Paul describes that was not that was not completed by Christ, but was completed by the Holy Ghost regenerating and renewing us. This is the vital phase of salvation, where the Holy Spirit renews our mind by giving us a spiritual mind and regenerates us, that is, by giving us a new birth by which we obtain a new man, so that we now have a new nature that has the principle of eternal life within it. This is the vital phase of salvation. By the work of the Holy Spirit, we are now alive in Jesus Christ. We have spiritual life and are able to do those things that are pleasing to him. When we come back a few pages to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 16, 1 Timothy 4, 16, we shall see the practical phase of salvation. Paul wrote the young minister Timothy and said, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. If Timothy would be diligent in his ministry, he would be careful. In verse 13, he would give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. In verse 14, if he wouldn't neglect the gift that he had been given for the ministry. If in verse 15, he would give himself wholly to these things, he could save himself and those that heard him. Now, does that mean he could save them from hell? Could he save them legally? Could he save them vitally by giving them a new nature? Could he glorify them so that they would be fit for heaven? Of course not. The only way that Timothy could save them is that he could save them from error and false doctrine. If Timothy would apply himself carefully to the doctrine, he would be saved and he would avoid false doctrine. If he would continue in that false doctrine and teach it to others, then he would save those that hurt him. Now, doesn't that make perfectly good sense? Obviously, Timothy was not a savior from hell. Timothy could no more save sinners from hell to a home in heaven than he could create the worlds again. Timothy could simply save men from ignorance, false doctrine, and doing those things that are displeasing to Jesus Christ. He could save men from God's judgment and save them to perfect fellowship through Jesus Christ by teaching them the true doctrine of Christ. And last of all, when Paul says in Romans 13, 11, that now his salvation is nearer than when he believed, obviously he's referring to the final phase of salvation when Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven and take us home to be with him in the new heaven and the new earth. For he said, now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. He's already said in 2 Timothy 1, 9, that the eternal phase of our salvation is complete. He said in 1 Timothy 1.15 that the legal phase of our salvation through Christ's death is complete. He said in Titus 3.5 that the Holy Ghost work in our regeneration and thus our vital salvation is complete. And so when he says here that our salvation is nearer, that it's not complete yet, but that it's nearer, we must rightly divide the word of truth and see that that verse is referring to the final phase of salvation when we shall be glorified in God's presence. Now, doesn't that make the word of God simple? Can't you read those five verses and see how that Paul is referring to different aspects of our salvation and how they all work together and one day God's elect will be gathered in his presence, perfect in body, soul, and spirit. 
Now what I'd like to do with you to stimulate your minds to think upon the Word of God and to see if you can't increase your understanding of the salvation we have in Jesus Christ, I want to give you several verses of Scripture and have you look at them, and I'll give you a moment to decide what phase of salvation is under consideration. The first one I want to look at is Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. The angel here is speaking to Joseph, and he says, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The angel is telling Joseph that Mary is soon to have a son. That son should be called Jesus, and that this Jesus, which would be born to Mary, would save his people from their sins. What sense of salvation is under consideration here? Is the salvation our salvation from death in trespasses and sins, where we are regenerated into spiritual life, as we read in Ephesians chapter 2? Of course not, because you weren't around when Mary brought forth Jesus Christ. You weren't to be born for 2,000 years, so it couldn't be the vital phase of salvation when the Spirit of God regenerates us into spiritual life. Could it have been the eternal phase of salvation when God chose sinners to be saved by electing them in Jesus Christ? No, because this aspect of salvation is still spoken of in the future tense when the angel spake to Joseph. Because the verse says, He shall, future tense, save his people from their sins. Obviously, and I hope that it's obvious to you by this stage of our study, this is referring to the legal phase of salvation. Jesus Christ would be born of a virgin in order to come into this world with a flesh and blood body so that he could shed that blood and have that flesh torn on the cross and suffer death to provide a legal basis to save God's elect from their sins, that is, God's people. I'm sure that you can see this in Matthew 1 and verse 21. The salvation described here is our legal salvation in which Jesus Christ had our sins put up to his account according to 1 Peter 2 and he suffered and died for those sins to provide a legal basis for our salvation. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and we'll read verse 2. Paul in verse 1 is talking about the gospel that he had preached to the Corinthians. And he says in verse 2, By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. Paul here says in 1 Corinthians 15, 2, that the only way that you can be saved by the preaching of the gospel is to keep it in memory. Now is that salvation salvation from hell to heaven? If it is then that means when we grow old and become senile and lose our memories of everything that's been preached to us in the gospel, that we're going to go to hell. Now, does that make sense? Does that agree with the rest of Scripture? Of course not. What Paul is describing here is the fact that the gospel is only good for you so long as you keep it in memory. And there was a good reason for him to say that here at the church at Corinth because there were some among the Corinthians who were now preaching that Jesus Christ had not been raised from the dead. Look at verse 12. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? See, some of these Corinthians had forgotten what Paul had taught them about the resurrection of the dead, and they now believe that there was no resurrection. 
And because they had forgotten the hope of the resurrection, they were in a state of misery. Look at verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. If you forget that aspect of the preaching of the gospel that sets forth before you the hope of the resurrection, you're going to be in a miserable state in this world. That is one of the benefits of the preaching of the gospel, to save us to hope that there's something beyond the grave. Because these Corinthians had forgotten that, they were now in a state of misery. And Paul's saying the gospel can save you. That is, it can save you from misery. It can save you to peace in this world if you keep it in memory. But if you don't pay attention to the preaching when it occurs, if you don't study the word of God, if you don't remember the things that you learn, then you'll take yourself right back into a state of misery by forgetting what the gospel was designed to save you from. It was designed to save you from misery by giving you hope. That is a practical phase of salvation in 1 Corinthians 15, 2. It has nothing at all to do with salvation from hell because Paul is already writing a church of saints, individuals who are already on their way to heaven. But he's telling them that if they don't keep the gospel in memory, if they don't remember what he taught them, then they would not be saved from their misery, but they would wind up in false doctrine, have their faith overthrown by these false teachers who was preaching, who were preaching there was no resurrection. Let's look now at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 and see if I can't question you with another verse of scripture that has the word salvation in it. 1 Peter 1, 5. Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. What phase of salvation do you think 1 Peter 1, 5 is speaking of? What phase of salvation can be described as a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time? Obviously, Jesus Christ has already been revealed. That's what the New Testament is for, to reveal Jesus Christ to us. The Holy Spirit's been revealed because the Apostle Paul wrote about and described the operation of the Holy Spirit in quickening us into eternal life. The phase of salvation in 1 Peter 1, 5 must be the final phase. The salvation Paul described as nearer than when we believe, because Peter here describes it as ready to be revealed in the last time. It's not a salvation we've obtained yet. It's a salvation that has yet to be revealed, and that is when we shall be glorified, body, soul, and spirit, in the presence of God. We don't have this aspect of salvation yet. It hasn't been revealed. It shall be revealed with the coming of Jesus Christ. And you can see that plainly if you look at the context. Look at verse 4, where it's describing our inheritance that is reserved in heaven. And in verse 7, it speaks about the appearing of Jesus Christ, the last few words of verse 7. What we have under consideration in 1 Peter 1, 5 is the salvation that must be divided as the final phase of salvation, which takes place at the last day when Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven and we are glorified to be forever in his presence. Let's look at James chapter 5 and verse 20. It should be on the same page with 1 Peter 1, 5. In James 5, 19 and 20, we read, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converted the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Now here's a salvation of souls from death and the hiding of a multitude of sins. What phase of salvation is this? What aspect or stage of salvation 
is the Apostle James writing about? Can you detect and identify the phase of salvation here in this verse? Obviously, it has to be the practical phase of salvation. And there's a dead giveaway in verse 19 where it says, and one convert him. Conversion, remember, is what happens in the practical phase of salvation. The individuals in verses 19 and 20 here are already saved by God's election. They're already saved by Christ's death. They're already saved by the Holy Spirit's new birth. We can read that in James chapter 1 and 18. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Notice, these individuals that James is writing to have already been created anew in Christ Jesus. They're already born again, justified, elect children of God. That's why he calls them brethren. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, that is, if they leave the truth and, and another brother comes along and converts them back to the truth, let that second brother know that because he converted the sinner from the error of his way, notice it's not salvation from hell, but it's salvation from the error of his way. That is, he has some form of error in his behavior. Maybe he's believing that the resurrection is not true, as we just saw in 1 Corinthians 15. Maybe he believes that you shouldn't be that you don't need to be baptized, and that baptism isn't important. Well, he needs to be converted from that error. He is in the way of error as long as he holds either of those two false positions. And by converting him back, you save a soul from death. Not death in sin, not death in hell, not the second death, but death in fellowship. Remember when the prodigal son's father saw his son returning, he said, this my son was dead. This my son was dead. Now his son wasn't actually dead. His son was just dead as far as any relationship with his father. And when we are in a way that is filled with error, then we are dead to fellowship with our Heavenly Father. And it's our duty to get back into the way of righteousness. And we hide a multitude of sins by converting a person because we then stop them from continuing to sin in that particular area. For those of you listening to this tape, this these two verses right here are extremely important. This is why I preach the gospel. I don't preach the gospel to get your names written down in heaven. I don't preach the gospel to save you from an eternity in hell. Jesus Christ did that, and he did that by himself according to God's own purpose. And he shall get all the glory for that in heaven. If you have not heard the doctrine of unconditional salvation, then you need to get the Bible study that I've prepared that is entitled Unconditional Salvation, in which I prove by seven infallible proofs that men will be in heaven saved eternally by the unconditional mercy and grace of God. I have nothing to do with that, and you have nothing to do with it. Our duties are contained in these two verses. We are to look out for our brethren, and when we see them in error, we are to work to convert them back to the truth. By doing that, we can save some of God's children from the pig pen of this world and bring them back to fellowship with God, and we can save them from continuing in sin by turning them from that course. I hope you can see that here in this verse. Look at 1 Corinthians 9 with me now. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 22 for another quiz on what phase of salvation is under consideration. 1 Corinthians 9.22, Paul writes to the Corinthians, To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, 
that I might by all means save some. Now, does that mean that the Apostle Paul considers himself the Savior of the Corinthians? Does that mean that Paul, by being made all things to all men, can become their Savior? If the salvation in this verse means salvation from sin, like the legal phase, or salvation from death in the uh, in sin, like the vital phase, then in heaven, men are going to be giving Paul the glory as their Savior. Obviously, it can't mean that. It simply means that Paul was very crafty and very careful when he preached the gospel. If he was preaching to Jews in verse 20, he behaved like a Jew as far as he could in order to gain the Jews. What did he want to gain about the Jews? He wanted to gain their confidence so they would believe the gospel. In verse 21, when he met those that were without law, he behaved as if he was without law so that he could gain their confidence that he might gain them. And in verse 22, he said whatever he had to do, he tried to accommodate himself to men as far as he could in order that he might save them. That is, save them with the preaching of the gospel. Save them from their idols, like he did the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Save the Ephesians from worshiping the goddess Diana. That is what Paul saved them from. He didn't save them from hell. God did that. He saved them from error and worshiping false gods. Look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 40. Acts 2 and verse 40. Acts chapter 2 is the first sermon preached by the apostles after the day of Pentecost. God poured out his Holy Spirit upon them, and Peter preached boldly here in the second chapter of Acts. And in verses 38 through 40, he's giving what many today would call the invitation. He is telling men in verse 38 to repent and be baptized, and they shall receive the remission of sins. And in verse 39, he tells them that this promise is to their children and even to the Gentiles who are afar off. And in verse 40, we have this statement. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Now, right in conjunction with repentance and baptism, Peter says, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. What salvation is being saved from a generation? Obviously, it can't be the eternal phase, because there was no generation involved when God elected. It can't be salvation from sin that Jesus Christ obtained at the cross, because Jesus Christ didn't save us from a generation. He saved us from our own sins. The salvation here is salvation from God's judgment, which was shortly to be poured out upon the nation of Israel. Remember, God had sent prophets year for years and years to the nation of Israel, and they had rejected them. They had stoned them and killed them. He had sent his only son, and they crucified him. And in Matthew chapter 24, we read of all of God's judgment that he is going to pour out upon this generation. He says in Matthew chapter 24, and I believe it's verse 36, that all these things shall come to pass on this generation. It's verse 34 in Matthew 24. All the judgment and the tribulation that Jesus Christ describes in that chapter, he says, will come upon that generation. By believing the gospel, hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, and heeding the Savior's warnings contained in Matthew 24 and taught by the apostles, a number of Jews were saved from that judgment. They were saved from the generation that Jesus Christ judged in 70 AD when the Roman armies under Titus destroyed the city of Jerusalem. 
they were saved by believing the gospel and the practical instruction in it to get out of the city of Jerusalem. Let's look now at Mark chapter 16 and verse 16. Mark 16, 16. This is a popular verse. Jesus Christ is about to ascend back into heaven, and he tells his disciples in verse 15 of Mark chapter 16, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Now what salvation is under consideration here? Is this how men are saved from their sins? I thought Jesus Christ said, It is finished when he died on the cross. And we read in Matthew one twenty one that he came to save his people from their sins. I thought we read that men are regenerated or given the new birth by the power of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 2, and that when the Holy Spirit quickens them into eternal life, they are dead in trespasses and sins. And you know that a dead man cannot cooperate with coming to life. Dead men in sin certainly didn't cooperate with the Holy Spirit in being quickened into spiritual life. The salvation in Mark 16, 16 must be a salvation other than salvation from sin, the new birth, final glorification, or God's election. And it is. It is salvation in the practical sense of the word. It is salvation from error in this world to a state of, to a state and a form of conduct that is pleasing to God. How do we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling? Remember in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13 we read that God worked in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And now it is our duty to work out that salvation with fear and trembling. And we do that by believing and being baptized. You show me a person that believes and is baptized and I'll show you a person that has been saved from the errors of this world into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And he is now part of Christ's kingdom here in this world where he is pleasing his Savior. But you show me a person that doesn't believe and I'll show you a person that's going to be damned. That is, he's going to be judged in this world. Damnation does not have to refer to judgment in the lake of fire. It can easily refer to God's chastening of men here in this world. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, those Corinthians that abused the Lord's Supper, we read of them that they had received God's damnation. And that if we would judge ourselves before we partake of the Lord's Supper, we can avoid that judgment or damnation. If you'll go to the passage, you can see that the word damnation is used there. That's not describing the Corinthians going to hell. It's describing the Corinthians being saved from false doctrine and practice that was not pleasing to God. And he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Baptism has nothing to do with earning your way to heaven, and neither does believing the gospel. Believing the gospel and being baptized are ways in which you please the God of heaven, who has saved you already for his presence. The only way you could believe is for God to have already saved you through the death of Christ and regenerated you through the work of the Holy Spirit. Because without that regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, you would not seek after God. You do not understand God. You want to have nothing to do with him. Psalm 14, 2 and Romans 8, 7 and 8 teach us that very clearly. Let's go further now in the study of salvation and look at Acts chapter 10 and see if we can't see in the salvation experience of 
Cornelius the centurion a perfect description of some of these phases. In Acts chapter 10, beginning at verse 1, we can read a short description of Cornelius before he met Peter, who preached to him the gospel. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. Now notice something about Cornelius. In verse 2, we read that he was a devout man. He's one that feared God with all his house. He gave much alms to the people, and he prayed to God always. Now in verse 4, when the angel comes to Cornelius, the angel says, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. The Holy Spirit tells us that Cornelius feared God. Romans 3.18 tells us that men who are not saved don't fear God. The Holy Spirit tells us, and the angel tells us, that Cornelius's alms were accepted by God. They were works of righteousness. The only men in this world who do works of righteousness acceptable to God are those who are already saved and are righteous before God. We read that his prayers were heard by God. First Peter chapter 3 tells us that only the prayers of the righteous are heard by God. We can see clearly that Cornelius was already saved. He was already on his way to heaven. He was already a born-again child of God. Look at verses 34 and 35. As soon as Peter met Cornelius, this is what Peter had to say. In verses 34 and 35, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Cornelius according to Peter's testimony, was already accepted with God. And the, the way that Peter knew he was accepted, because he feared God and worked righteousness. You show me a man that fears God and works righteousness, and I'll show you a man that has already been saved by the regenerating power of the Spirit of God. God had elected Cornelius. Christ had died for Cornelius some years earlier, and the Spirit of God had regenerated Cornelius. He was already accepted with God. However... Cornelius didn't know anything about the gospel. Cornelius needed to hear the preaching of the gospel that would tell him what Jesus Christ had done for him and would tell him what he could now do for Jesus Christ. And lo and behold, we see in verse 48 that Peter commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Peter, Cornelius would not have dreamed up the idea of baptism in a hundred years if it had not been for Peter preaching that doctrine to him. That is the purpose of the gospel. That is the practical phase of salvation. The things that Cornelius needed to do in order to please God. Remember when the angel came to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and verse 6, he told Cornelius to send for one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. Now Cornelius was in need of hearing things he should do. Now, no man can do anything for salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. God worked salvation when he elected men to salvation. Christ died and finished the legal work of salvation. And the Holy Spirit, by creative power, regenerates men. And it will be by the faithfulness and power of God that will glorify us in his presence one day. Yet Cornelius needed to hear the things he should do to please God. God had now saved him. God wanted Cornelius to work here in this world to please him that he might enjoy fellowship with God.
Notice in Acts 10 and verse 6, it's that Peter was to tell Cornelius what things he ought us to do. In Acts chapter 11, in Acts chapter 11 and verse 14, Peter is recounting the event of Cornelius' conversion to some of the Jews in Jerusalem. And he said that the angel told Cornelius, who shall tell thee words whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. Notice that Peter uses the word saved in Acts chapter 11 and verse 14. And the angel, and the very event which Peter is describing occurred in Acts chapter 10 and verse 6, in which the angel told Cornelius that Peter would tell him the things he ought to do. The salvation that Cornelius experienced by Peter preaching to him the gospel was the practical phase of salvation. God had elected Cornelius before the world began. We can read that in Ephesians 1.4 and 2 Timothy 1.9. Jesus Christ had died for Cornelius and saved him from his sins seven years before this when he died on the cross. 1 Timothy 1.15, Matthew 1.21, 2 Corinthians 5.21, other verses tell us about the legal salvation that is in Christ. The Holy Spirit must have already regenerated Cornelius but because he was giving the evidence and signs of a born-again child of God. He did this by fearing God, by praying, and by giving alms that were acceptable to God. Peter came along and preached the gospel, the good news of what Jesus Christ had already done for him and what Cornelius could now do for Jesus Christ. And the first thing he could do was to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and by so doing, give the answer of a good conscience back to God for what God had done for him. Now, with the knowledge of the gospel, Cornelius has the understanding to please God here in this world and to enjoy fellowship not only with God, but with other saints. This is the purpose of the preaching of the gospel. This is the practical phase of salvation. If you will carefully review your outlines, you'll find that most of the occurrences of the words saved and salvation in Scripture refer to this practical phase. God, my friends, works our salvation so that we shall be with Christ in glory. We must obey the gospel in order to enjoy God's benefits here in this world. I hope these five phases of salvation will give you the ability and basis for understanding what the New Testament teaches us about salvation. I want you to increase in your knowledge of what God has done for us in saving us so graciously. I want you to see the sovereignty of God in the salvation of sinners from their sins and an eternity in hell to eternal glory in Christ's presence. And yet I also want you to see the practical phase of salvation where our human responsibility is at the test, where we must take what God has done for us and in turn obey Him and the ordinances and instructions of the gospel. It is these five phases of salvation that reconcile the mystery, the so-called mystery, between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. God is sovereign and he is responsible for phases one, two, three, and five. That is, he's responsible for the eternal, the legal, the vital, and the final phases of salvation. We are responsible for the practical phase of salvation. We are to hear what God has done for us and it is to motivate us to service for him. Our degree of conversion and our degree of service does not in any way earn heaven for us or provide a basis for our eternal salvation in Christ's presence. But it does save us from God's judgment and it does save us to fellowship and peace 
here in this world. I hope you can see the difference between God's four phases and our single phase. God has worked our eternal salvation, which will conclude with our glorification, while it's our job to work for our conversion and the conversion of others. If you'll use these five phases, you'll also find that they will help you understand several aspects or components of salvation. What I call a component of salvation are words like or, and concepts like justification. That is, how were we made just before God? Well, justification can also be divided into five phases. You'll find this information contained in your outline. What does sanctification mean? How is a person sanctified? When is a person sanctified? You'll find that by studying the doctrine of sanctification, and again, a brief study is contained in your outline, the five phases will help you understand how and when a person is sanctified. You'll see God's eternal purpose of sanctification when he chose to make sinners holy. You'll see Christ's legal phase of sanctification when he died on the cross to secure our holiness. You'll see the vital phase of sanctification when the Holy Spirit sanctifies us by giving us a holy nature. The practical phase of our salvation is when we are to be holy as he which hath called us is holy. The final phase of sanctification is when God will sanctify us holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, as 1 Thessalonians 5.23 tells us. If you'll study these five phases of salvation, they will give you a basis for understanding salvation like you have never seen before. You will be able to read your New Testaments and understand what's being talked about when the word saved, saved, or salvation is used. Remember, these five phases aren't my invention. They're the invention of God himself, and he told us to look for them in 2 Timothy 2.15 when he said that we must study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. To understand God's word, to meet with his approval, and to not be ashamed in our doctrine, we must divide scripture. I have tried to do that for you in this study. If you'll remember these divisions, if you'll study them, if you'll look up some of the other references provided in the outline, you'll see that by dividing salvation this way, we can come to a much fuller understanding of what God has done for us and what we in turn are to do for him. You will see the true purpose of the gospel is to send forth the good news of what God has done and to call men to obedience, not to earn their way to heaven, not to perform conditions to be eternally saved, but to please the God who has already saved them in his four phases. My friends, I pray that you will attend to the things that you have heard, search the scriptures, prove all things, and hold fast that which is good. May God bless the preaching of his word is my prayer.